Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Buffy and the Art of Stories, Season 3. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you love creating stories, or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Today we are talking about Season 3, Episode 19 of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The Prom, where a hellhound attack threatens to ruin the prom and Buffy's hope for one perfect high school moment. In particular, we'll talk about what looks like the resolution of the Buffy-Angel relationship, but is it? More on that in the spoilers. A very subtle story spark or inciting incident that only becomes clear when we examine the plot closely. An episode where the main plot or a plot is not obvious, at least to me, until watching the entire entire episode all the way through. And finally, no real three-quarter plot turn, though there is definitely an escalation of the various conflicts. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. The Prom originally aired on May 11, 1999. It was written by Marty Noxon and directed by David Solomon. This episode was one of the most interesting for me to analyze for its story structure. The first time I saw it, I remember that I didn't like it as I did the second time through and on later rewatches. And I think that's because the first time around, I mistakenly thought that this was a monster episode, The Hellhounds Attack the Prom. And I kept waiting for the monster to appear. And as we'll see, that doesn't happen till about a quarter of the way through. But I always loved the end of the episode. So I enjoyed it the first time I watched the series all the way through on the DVDs because I now knew where the episode was going. And now having taken it apart for this podcast, I love it even more. We start with an opening conflict, as we should. That's a conflict that is there to draw the viewer in. And sometimes it relates directly to our main plot, sometimes to a subplot, and occasionally it is just a character conflict that gets us engaged with these people on the screen and then the episode goes a different direction. Here we have Buffy asleep. Angel is watching her. They are lying on his bed fully dressed. Um, She wakes up and asks if she has funny bed hair and she does. They overdid the napping after slaying. She starts to get up to as she says go kill the cat on my head. But he reminds her there are no mirrors, and she comments on how his place is not girl-friendly. Buffy also mentions wanting to spend the night after prom. Uh, He asks what that is. She compares it to a cotillion and tells him don't worry about it. It's at night, and lots of girls have older boyfriends. Buffy also says they should think about getting some mirrors and a drawer for her stuff because that's what couples do. They have drawers. Angel says that's right, but he looks troubled. And as Buffy talks further, he says, I think maybe you should get going, huh? She thinks there must be a few hours before sunrise, but when she parts the curtains to check, sunlight streams through and Angel leaps away. Buffy says, sorry, I guess it's later than we thought. When I sat down to write my outline for today's recording, the first time through, I struggled with what is the main plot of the episode and how does this conflict relate or does it? 
At first, I was thinking of it as maybe the A plot or main plot is the Buffy-Angel relationship. And clearly, Buffy's comment of, sorry, I guess it's later than we thought, does sum up the trajectory of the Buffy-Angel relationship plot in this episode. I also, as I went through, started thinking that maybe it was a bigger plot than that about Buffy's future because of some lines that come later in the episode. But ultimately, I think it is something more specific and slightly different than that. So we're at two minutes, five seconds in, and we go to credits. When we return, we're at the high school. It's daytime. Xander sees Anya approaching and says, well, hey, it's Demon Anya, Punisher of Evil Males. And she comments on seeing centuries of male treachery and says she has nothing but contempt for, quote, the whole libidinous lot of them, unquote. But when he asks why she is talking to him, if that's the case, she looks away, sighs, and says she doesn't have a date for the prom. And Xander responds, well, gosh, I wonder why not. It couldn't possibly have anything to do with your sales pitch. We then get a wonderful Xander-Anya exchange. Anya says, men are evil. Will you go with me? Xander answers, one of us is confused, and I honestly don't know which. Anya tells him this is all his fault, and he asks how that can be. And she tells him because he was unfaithful to Cordelia, Anya took on the high school persona to tempt her and lost her powers and got stuck, and now she has all these feelings and wants to go to the prom. What I love about that line is how much exposition comes out so naturally. We get all of that background about Anya, and it really fits. I believe they had this conversation and that Anya would spill out all of this because she is so upset at being stuck as a high school student and wanting to go to the prom with a guy when she has thousands of years of history and experience that tells her that is a really bad idea. We are approaching the 10% mark of the episode. This is where we usually see the story spark or inciting incident that gets the plot rolling. And here, I think we have a very subtle story spark. And I missed it not just watching this time around, but even the first time I sat down to do my outline, I was puzzling out what exactly is the inciting incident here. Because we have at four minutes, 46 seconds in, so just a little past 10%, Our friends are sitting at a picnic table. Oz comments on Anya being an interesting choice for Xander's prom date. Xander says choice is a broad term and jokes around about not having other options. Buffy says they're all going and that's what matters and she has a great dress. And Buffy says Angel's going to lose it, but not his soul. He's not going to lose his it. I think the story spark was this line because the prom is a metaphor for what stands in the way of what we find out Buffy really wants, that one perfect high school moment. And in the beginning of the episode, she is linking that to going to the prom with Angel because Buffy has specifically said in the opening she wanted to spend the night after prom. Now her line about Angel losing it and her struggle to reassure herself and her friends that it will be okay underscores why that's problematic, why she can't have that moment because she and Angel cannot have sex. And there is this danger and this complication that she and Angel always have to have these limits on their relationship and be very careful about it. The scene then switches, underscoring further that this is about more than just the idea of the prom. Angel is in his place and he sees the back of Buffy's notebook. She is left there and she is doodled Buffy and Angel forever, which both goes to what Buffy wants so much and is such a teenage, uh, such an emblem of Buffy being a high schooler, being a teenager that she is doodling this, something Angel with his 200 years of life would, would not be doing. 
And right then, Joyce knocks on Angel's door. He lets her in. He calls her Miss Summers, which I love is a contrast to enemies when we thought he was Angelus and he called her Joyce. They have a little back and forth about uh, whether he can offer her coffee. Joyce says, you don't drink beverages, I mean. And Angel says he does. It's just the caffeine makes him jittery. I enjoy the humor here. And also, it is a nice metaphor for all the ways that Angel both is and isn't human. And I think that it plays into uh, what I see as this subplot of the Buffy-Angel relationship. Joyce comments on Buffy spending the night. So again, we have this emphasis on the limits on their relationship because Angel reassures her that what happened before when he changed won't happen again. But that is not all that Joyce is worried about. She says Buffy is just starting out in life. And the fact that she is the slayer and has so many responsibilities is an even greater reason that Buffy needs to have a normal life wherever she can. Angel tells Joyce he's been thinking about that more since she's staying in Sunnydale. So this explains more of his reticence in the initial scene, uh, why this has has changed a bit on his part or why his concern has deepened because now Buffy is going to go to UC Sunnydale. Although really, I mean, if Buffy went away to school, Angel certainly could have relocated as well. So I'm not sure that would really cause Angel to think more, but I think that is supposed to be why we hear that line. Joyce responds, good, because when it comes to you, Angel, she's just like any other woman in love. You're all she can see of tomorrow. But I think we both know there are some hard choices ahead. If she can't make them, you're going to have to. I know you care about her. I just hope you care enough. Nice reference with choices to the previous episode that was uh, named Choices and where the mayor made comments that are partly motivating Angel now. You could see Joyce's comment as a very late story spark. We're almost eight minutes in. If we think of the main plot here being Buffy and Angel's relationship coming apart. But Angel has already been considering this. We saw that in the opening conflict. So I think that Joyce being there just escalates that or puts more pressure on. On my first watch, I I feel like I was angry at Joyce. Who is she to make these decisions for Buffy in a way or push Angel to make the decision for Buffy? Something that Buffy will echo later when she and Angel uh, have that talk. And in retrospect, I'm still not sure how I feel about Joyce intervening, but I I do believe it comes from a very good place from her genuine concern about her daughter, and I believe that Joyce would do this. At 7 minutes 50 seconds in, we're in the library. Willow and Buffy are talking about something with fringed arms. Giles is impatient when he realizes they are not talking about demons but prom dresses. Giles and Wesley are both concerned because they don't know what demon the mayor is going to turn into on graduation day. And Wesley goes so far as to say no one should be wasting time on the prom until Cordelia says that Wesley would look way 007 in a tux. And he then claims that he'll be sharing chaperoning duties with Giles. Uh, Somewhat to Giles' surprise, judging from his expression. Buffy, though, argues that they all deserve a little promy fun, especially if they're all going to vaporize on graduation day. At 9 minutes 23 seconds in, we get a quick shot of what we will find out later is a hellhound in a cage. There is a TV 
TV in front of it with static playing. So this is the first time we see the monster. And I think this is part of why when I watched the episode the first time, it felt a little slow because here we are uh, almost a quarter way through and this is the first time we even have a hint that there is a supernatural danger lurking other than the overall mayor ascension plot. We then switch to a church. It's it's quickly clear this is a dream. Angel and Buffy are at the altar and the minister is saying the words of a wedding ceremony. I am sure this was partly here so that there could be previews the week before of Angel and Buffy getting married. And I do remember seeing that preview and seeing commercials for it. Normally that would seem a, a little cheesy and manipulative to me. But I think this works so well because there is a twist on it and it does move the plot. And the twist is, I thought, and I would think most viewers thought, this was Buffy's dream. Especially because we saw the Buffy and Angel forever. And usually when we see a dream, though not always, it is Buffy's dream. They exchange rings, Angel lifts her veil, and they kiss and they walk down the aisle and out into the sun. Angel looking increasingly nervous as they approach that doorway to outside. Buffy steps out first. And at 11 minutes, 22 seconds in, Angel hears crackling flames and turns. And Buffy says, Angel? And Buffy burns. And Angel wakes up. This is almost one quarter through the episode. And I see this as that one quarter plot twist that spins the story in a new direction, comes from outside the protagonist, and raises the stakes. If the dream itself is not it, certainly the next scene is. At 11 minutes 33 seconds in, and our episodes are typically 43 to 44 minutes long, in the sewers, Buffy and Angel are hunting a vampire. Buffy reminds Angel that he needs a tux for the prom, and he tells her there are more important things to think about. They find the vampire, Buffy quickly stakes it, ready to get back to the conversation with Angel, and points out that whenever she says prom, he gets grouchy. Angel is worried she's getting too invested in the whole thing, as he puts it, and Buffy says, isn't this what she's supposed to be invested in? Going to a formal, graduating, growing up. So this is where I started thinking, okay, maybe the main plot isn't so much just Buffy and Angel, but Buffy's future, Buffy growing up, and what does that mean for her as the Slayer? This conversation leads to Angel telling her that he has been thinking about their future, and that being together, he says, quote, is unfair to you, close quote. She connects it to what the mayor says and tells them the mayor was just trying to shake them and Angel says the mayor was right and Buffy says no he wasn't he's the bad guy and Angel responds you deserve more you deserve something outside of demons and darkness you should be with someone who can take you into the light someone who can make love to you that taking you into the light is what makes me see the dream Angel's dream as that turn because I feel like that dream it articulated all his fears that it was Buffy he was endangering not himself by continuing this relationship Buffy tells him she doesn't care Um, he tells her she will and Buffy says I'll never have a normal life and he agrees but it's all the more reason to have something other than this freak show Buffy tells him who are you to tell me what's right for me he says he's thinking with his head and not his heart and she says heart you have a heart it isn't even beating Buffy and Angel seem like such a genuine couple here it's just so real the conflict is 
is real. The way that Buffy says awful things to Angel because she is so hurt and so distressed that kind of fighting in about the real issues but also fighting in sometimes a mean way and Buffy raising real issues about who is Angel to tell her. He is telling her what she will want, what she will think, what she will need. Also there are philosophical questions here. How can the mayor be right when he's the bad guy? I see this tying all the way back to lie to me where Giles and Buffy had that conversation at the grave of Buffy's friend Ford who had lied to her in his quest to become a vampire. Buffy says how complicated things are, the white hats and the black hats, and it's all becoming more complicated. Seeing people as firmly one or the other. And this question about the mayor being right adds yet another layer because clearly the mayor is a black hat. His aims are evil. He wants to destroy all of Sunnydale. He wants to become a giant demon. The mayor we also see, as I'll talk about when I do the season three review, he does some things right. He works at being a good mayor. In many ways, he is a better father figure to Faith than Giles was. He recognizes Faith's needs. He tries to take care of her more than the council ever did and sees things that the people who are supposed to be her friends missed. Also, he offers important observations about Angel and Buffy. Whatever his motives are in doing it, he gives important advice. And and this is yet another thing for Buffy to struggle with. Just because the mayor is the bad guy doesn't mean that he is wrong. And now we get these heartbreaking lines where Buffy says, I want my life to be with you. And Angel says, I don't. This always makes me cry. He tries to tell her it doesn't mean he doesn't love her. She starts to walk away from him and turns back and says, how am I supposed to stay away from you? And Angel tells her he will leave after the ascension. He doesn't know where he'll go. At 16 minutes, 45 seconds in, it's nighttime. Buffy sits alone on the eve outside her bedroom in the dark and Angel broods by the fire in his place. I will be recording a season three roundup episode at the end of this month. If you would like your thoughts included, email me lisa at lisalily.com. Tweet me at Lisa Emmas and Marie Lily, L I L L Y, hashtag Buffy Story, or post on the Facebook Buffy and the Art of Story page. Look for the pinned post at the top. If you do this by January 23rd, 2021, I'll do my best to include your thoughts about season three in the roundup episode. They can include anything from your favorite moment, thoughts on the Buffy faith, relationship, or anything else in the show for that season. Also, thank you to everyone who has supported the show by tweeting about it, posting on social media, becoming a patron, telling a friend, or leaving reviews. It means so much to me that you enjoy the podcast, that you care about story, and love Buffy the Vampire Slayer as much as I do. The next day, Willow is with Buffy in her bedroom, and Willow says, so that's it? And Buffy confirms that Angel is leaving if they all survive the ascension. Willow says Angel's a fool. He's a maxi jerk because he did it right before the prom. But Buffy tells her it's okay. Willow doesn't have to make him the bad guy. So we get another use of the bad guy. The mayor is one. Angel's not yet. Essentially, they are seeing the same thing about Buffy's and Angel's relationship. I love Willow's response. She says that's the best friend's job vilifying and grousing and Buffy tells her usually yeah but he's right I mean I think maybe in the long run that he's right Willow responds yeah I think he is I mean I tried to hope for the best but I'm sorry it must be horrible Buffy tells her horrible is still coming right now it's worse 
and she sobs and Willow holds her and Buffy says she feels like she can't breathe and she doesn't know how she is going to survive. So many questions here as well. Is it right that Angel makes this decision in a way for Buffy? On the one hand, I see it as so paternalistic. I'm going to tell you what you want, what you need, how you will feel and make this decision for you. But on the other hand, it is his choice whether or not to continue a relationship with someone else for whatever reason. And here, yeah, his reason is he feels he's harming Buffy by staying and he can't live with that or does not want to be the person who does that. At 18 minutes 55 seconds in, the hellhound breaks out of its cage. We switch immediately to the dress shop where Cordelia works. And in an earlier conversation, she told Buffy and Willow not to go there because that's where she shops, obviously not wanting them to find out. She's holding a dress up in front of herself, looking in the mirror. Xander walks in and asks her how long it takes to buy a dress. Cordelia's co-worker walks over, asks if Xander is a customer or a friend, and tells Cordelia to get back to work and quit goofing because the manager has it in for Cordelia. Xander is shocked and asks why she works there. Cordelia tells him she's trying to buy a dress because she has nothing. No money, no dress, no car, no cell phone. All because daddy made a little mistake on his taxes for the last 12 years. When Xander says wow, Cordelia says yeah, wow, and asks if he's happy now. She can't go to any of the colleges that accepted her, and she can't stay home because she no longer has one. Now he can run along and tell his friends how Cordelia finally got hers. She has to work part-time just to put a dress on layaway and now she has to wear a name tag and she says I'm a name tag person don't leave that out the story just wouldn't have the same punch I love this whole conflict it explains to the audience why Cordelia is working why she has been so mean to everybody and this last part about the name tag is so very Cordelia I feel like for her this would be the epitome of what to her is coming down in the world that she has to wear a name tag it's like insult to injury because for Cordelia this is something she never thought she would need to do and she is embarrassed as well it also sets up the next moment where as she says the same punch a hellhound bursts through the window of the store and attacks Xander so we're at 21 minutes one second in this is around the midpoint of the episode and usually here we would see a major commitment by the protagonist or the protagonist would suffer a major reversal. It was not clear to me at first what exactly the reversal is here or if there is one. Angel saying he'll leave Buffy definitely is a reversal for the Buffy Angel plot and Buffy telling Willow that Angel is right is a sort of commitment that Buffy makes to move forward without Angel. So I do see that as a sort of commitment midpoint of the Buffy and Angel subplot. In our monster plot, it just doesn't feel like that huge of a moment. And this is part of why when I first watched the episode, it fell a little bit flat as it was going through. Because we've seen so little of this hound, and so now it bursts into the store. That almost feels like an inciting incident. Often this is something we might see in the beginning of a Buffy episode. The hound lets Xander go and goes after a guy in a tux, but it suddenly stops and bounds out of the store and we see a quick flash of a guy outside who has what looks like a remote control device. At 21 minutes 32 seconds in, Giles comments on the hound just stopping. They are all in the library watching a video of what happened. Cordelia comments that the uh, creature had good taste. It chucked Xander and went right for the formal wear. Xander disputes this, but the video makes it clear. Wesley and Giles identify the creature as a hellhound and says these beings are particularly vicious. They are demon foot 
foot soldiers trained to kill and they feed on the brains of their foes. I think I missed that line on first watch, but it it does escalate tension here because otherwise the hounds don't seem all that scary. Xander and Cordelia bicker about the video and whether it can be paused. Wesley chides everyone to stay on topic, but then veers off himself to ask Cordelia what she was doing there with Xander. She hesitates, starts to answer, and Xander jumps in and says, she was burning hole in daddy's wallet as usual. I just bumped into her during my tuxedo hunt. This is really nicely done. We have conflict as Wesley pushes everyone to focus on the hound, but then his jealousy seeps in, which is a great way to give Xander this chance to be decent and not tell everyone about Cordelia's troubles, which sets up the later moment when he pays off the dress for her. Now Oz notices that a student he knows, Tucker Wells, is outside seeming to direct the hound. So where I see the reversal, the midpoint reversal of the A-plot is less about specifically the monster and more about if we see Buffy's quest, which she'll name in another scene or two, to have one perfect high school moment. If that is our main plot, then this hellhound bursting in is a major reversal for her because now not only will she not be going to prom with Angel, instead of going to prom at all, she will be fighting hellhounds. It is once again Buffy's life as a slayer standing in the way of her normal life, what she sees as the life she used to have. At 23 minutes 31 seconds in, Buffy is sitting and paging through a book in silence. She's on the steps away from everyone. And when Xander asks how it's going, she just says, fine, without looking up. And Xander responds, well, I just wanted to say that your impersonation of an inanimate object is really coming along. Buffy absentmindedly says, thanks. Willow gets into Tucker's email, which talks about a threat against all the students on their big night. And everyone realizes the attack will be on the prom. They talk about skipping it, assuming they can't go, but Buffy stands up and says no. This is at 24 minutes, 28 seconds in, and in contrast to being an inanimate object, she is now very animated and says, you guys are going to have a prom, the kind of prom that everyone should have. I'm going to give you a nice, fun, normal evening if I have to kill everyone on the face of the earth to do it. And Xander says, yay. So this is a commitment by Buffy. It is a bit late. And the question is, what plot does it relate to? So it doesn't quite relate to her perfect high school moment because she has suffered that reversal. She is not going to get that moment. But she is now committed to making sure her friends get it. And we cut to a commercial. And the reason I don't quite see this as a midpoint commitment that is just a little late is that it is more of a reaction. It is a reaction to that midpoint reversal. And while Buffy certainly cares about her friends, I feel like it is more of her way of dealing with those emotions that she has about Angel breaking up with her and the fact that she feels like she can't have that perfect moment without Angel. When we're back from the commercial, Buffy gives everyone assignments and then asks Giles if this hellhound would eat any kind of brains because Tucker must be feeding it. At 25 minutes 43 seconds in, we are at the butcher shop. The butcher tells Buffy that yes, there's this kid who gets cow brains every week and he gives her the address. She sees Angel there buying blood and they talk. He tells her he misses her, but she doesn't want to talk about it. She can't handle it and says she has to stop a crazy from doing a carry at the prom. I love the Stephen King reference there. Buffy goes on, but it's fine. I mean, I'm cool with going stag. I'm over that whole Buffy gets one perfect high school moment thing. That small comment states explicitly our main plot, Buffy's quest for a perfect high school moment which started 
in the opening conflict with her telling Angel he will need a tux. At 27 minutes, 48 seconds in, Cordelia's co-worker hands her the dress and Cordelia says she didn't finish paying for it. But the girl says, well, somebody did. We switch to the library. Our friends, other than Buffy, slump on the stairs. None of them could track down Tucker. But Buffy comes in and says, don't worry, she has the address. They protest that they should stay and help her when she urges them to get ready for the prom, but she tells them she'll catch up, have a good time, and they all scramble off. As Buffy gets weapons from the book cage, Giles worries that she's being rash and she should have help, and he guesses that Angel is not taking her. She tells him Angel's leaving her and he's leaving town. I love how supportive Giles is here despite all his doubts about Angel and Buffy and that he must have had all the concerns that Joyce did and he says oh Buffy I'm sorry. He also says he understands this sort of thing requires ice cream. Buffy says that's for later. For now, the good thing about being a slayer is kicking ass is comfort food. At 29 minutes, 57 seconds in, we're at the prom. Anya is telling Xander tales of making men's heads explode and other torture. Oz and Willow arrive. Wesley tells Cordelia she looks smashing. She takes his arm and they approach Anya and Xander. Xander's now glassy-eyed as Anya talks about making a man cannibalize himself and he says to Cordelia and Wesley my god in heaven it's good to see you how are you both and details please Wesley says they are well thank you and Cordelia says thank you pointedly to Xander who tells her the dress looks good on her this is such a nice moment between the two of them I love in that brief exchange that they reach a place of being friends again and it pays off all their conflict in previous episodes. At 32 minutes, 41 seconds in, Buffy goes down into a basement and sees Tucker and the Hellhound. She tells him he's pathetic with his attempt to subvert the prom. She sees the TV and guesses that's how he brainwashed the hounds. When she asks why he did it, he says he has his reasons, and we get a flash to a girl saying no to him when he asks her to prom. Buffy ties up Tucker and says he's incompetent, but when she opens the door to lock him up, she sees three empty cages. The hellhounds are already gone, and he tells her he had to have a redundancy system. Any incompetent knows that. So somewhere around here, there should have been a three-quarter turn in the plot. That's the last major plot turn, and it typically grows from the midpoint, but takes the story in yet another new direction. And unlike that initial major turn that came from outside the protagonist, this should relate directly to either that reversal the protagonist suffered or her commitment. So here it is a little bit hard to see a turn. There's certainly a shift in the narrative when we shift to the prom itself. There is an escalation here when we think maybe Buffy can stop Tucker and we think that she has and then find out no, he's already released three of the hellhounds but this was already the plot or the subplot the monster subplot so it just raises the tension I don't really see this as a new direction so I'm not sure that we have any sort of three-quarter turn here either the monster subplot or Buffy's perfect high school moment plot at 34 minutes 11 seconds in Buffy is outside the prom she is trying to lead the hounds away calling to them running toward the trees and they do briefly follow her but then they hear celebration playing from the prom and turn around and, and head right back toward the building. She chases them, fights them outside and inside. Eventually she kills all of them. The last one she is fighting to the death. It's on top of her. She snaps its neck. She is breathing hard, exhausted and a clearly drunk student staggers out 
out of the ballroom and asks her where the bathroom is. She points the way and he thanks her. At 36 minutes in, she buries the hounds outside, takes her dress out of her weapons bag. This could feel like falling action from the monster plot. The climax of that plot was our opposing forces clashing one last time and the protagonist prevailing, winning, or losing. So here, Buffy prevailed. She killed all the hellhounds. So that was the climax. And you could see falling action in that now she gets to go to the prom. This is also why the monster plot is not the main plot. For one thing, not much has happened in it. This is really early for the climax to happen. This is also why when I watched the first time, it just felt weird to me because I thought, okay, so the hounds are gone. Is this it? This this is the story. Uh, It didn't seem all that important. And we will see the real climax in another few minutes. If you enjoy supernatural thrillers, you might like to check out my Awakening Supernatural Thriller series. In the first installment, a young woman finds her life at risk over a phenomenon she cannot understand. Tara Spencer is at a loss. She has recently learned she's pregnant despite never having had sex. Her fiancé breaks up with her, convinced she cheated on him, and even her parents and best friend doubt her story. But when Cyril Woods, a member of the Brotherhood Religious Order, claims to believe that Tara is still a virgin, she feels she has finally found understanding. The Brotherhood sees Tara's child as a possible new messiah. That is, until they learn she's expecting a girl. This revelation convinces them the child is actually the Antichrist, and they are determined to prevent Tara from giving birth at any cost. As the forces aligned against her close in, Tara's only hope for survival is to solve the mystery of her pregnancy. But who is her friend and who is her enemy? Will Tara find answers before it's too late? You can find the Awakening series under Supernatural and Horror on my website, lisalilly.com. It's a four-book series, and right now, ebook editions of the first book are free. Buffy walks into the prom in her beautiful pink dress. She nods at Giles, who smiles at her. Willow tells her she looks awesome, and she confirms that all the hounds are history. We switch to later in the evening. We're about 37 minutes in. The prom committee is giving out student awards. There is some fun when someone other than Xander gets the class clown award and walks up. I think he's got balloons and a horn, and Xander says, something about, well, anyone can be funny with props. But then Jonathan takes the microphone and says there is one more award. Is Buffy Summers here tonight? Buffy is at the punch bowl. She turns around and Jonathan says, this is a new category, the first time ever, and that apparently there were a lot of write-in ballots. The prom committee asked him to read this, and he reads from his note card, We're not good friends. Most of us never took time to get to know you, but that doesn't mean we haven't noticed. And he goes on about the weird things that have happened at the school, and yet Buffy always seemed to show up and stop them. And he says, most of the people here have been saved by you or helped by you at one time or another. Sunnydale High has its lowest mortality rate and says the committee asked him to give her this. And he brings out this golden parasol that sparkles. And he says, from all of us. And it has written here, Buffy Summers, class protector. This always makes me cry too. Buffy walks down the aisle. She is in the spotlight. She takes the parasol, which goes so beautifully with her dress. 
smiles at Jonathan and turns and smiles at the crowd. So this I see as the climax. If our A plot is Buffy's quest to get one perfect high school moment and here it is. Here is that perfect high school moment. And I love that it comes with a twist. Rather than being her moments with Angel making it perfect, it is her classmates finally recognizing her role and thanking her. And it means so much because all this time she has been fighting in the shadows, missing out on high school life. Remember in the episode about Slayer Fest when she and Cordelia were vying to become the queen of the dance and Buffy was so distraught because she says something like now she won't even be one tiny little photograph in the yearbook. Something that says she was there. She made a difference. And here is that moment, that recognition. So when I initially was thinking of this episode as a Buffy Angel plot or a Buffy Future plot, I had a note in my outline that said, what were the opposing forces? So for the climax, what were the opposing forces? And I said, maybe simply the overall forces of evil against not only Buffy's slayer strength, but her humanity, her desire for a ritual that all her friends and all the people she barely knows in high school look forward to. And that is what brought me to realize no the plot is the quest for the perfect high school moment and the opposing forces are the running conflict of the series Buffy's slayer responsibilities and duties and her desire to fight the forces of evil because she can do it. She has made that choice, but that force against the rest of her life, her desire for happiness, her desire to have recognition, a place in her school that other people see, and a moment of high school. So throughout this episode, that is played out in different ways. The monster plot has epitomized that by threatening prom the night that for Buffy is something of a culmination of high school the Buffy angel relationship plot where we have this curse standing in her way and angel making this decision with its larger consequences but also getting in the way of that moment that Buffy wanted to have so this is the culmination of that all those forces coming together and Buffy getting her moment and this This is what I always remember from the episode. In the falling action part of the story, we tie up loose ends and subplots. And that's also why I see the Buffy-Angel relationship as a subplot, because we'll get to that in a second. First, at 40 minutes, 12 seconds in, Wesley is talking to Giles, asking if it would be improper to ask Miss Chase to dance. And he stutters and stumbles. And Giles tells him Cordelia is 18, Wesley has the emotional maturity of a blueberry scone, have at it already. This is a funny exchange, mainly here, I think, to tell us or emphasize that Cordelia is 18 and therefore can be seen as an adult. I think that it would play differently now uh, for a mix, mix of reasons, partly over 20 years later, 18 seems younger than it did 20 years ago. We tend now to think of 18-year-olds as still, I mean, they're certainly not children, but we don't see them as much as adults who are going out into the world on their own. And also because there is much more awareness now of power imbalances in relationships and the issues when uh, assuming Wesley's let's say he's around 25 that even that seven years can make such a big difference when you are that age. So I don't know that 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 plot would go the same way now. But it is, for the time, for the series, it is a good resolution of the subplot, Wesley and Cordelia attraction, and Wesley's bit of jealousy about Xander. So Wesley and Cordelia dance. Giles finds Buffy and tells her she did good work. And she holds up her parasol happily and says, and she got a little toy surprise. 
Giles says, I had no idea that children en masse could be gracious. Buffy responds, every now and then people surprise you. Giles agrees, every now and then. He takes her parasol and she turns to see Angel in a tux. We're about 42 minutes in, almost at the end. He looks amazing. They dance. He tells her he's still leaving. This is just for tonight. And she says she knows. She's clearly happy to have him there for the dance. She tells him she accepts that he's leaving. She's not happy about that, but she understands. They dance and we go to credits. So Buffy gets two perfect high school moments for both parts of her life. One where she's recognized for her devotion and efforts as the Slayer, and one with her boyfriend at the prom. So that is it for the breakdown of the episode. I do have some spoilers and foreshadowing for the season finale, so I hope that you will stick around for that. If not, as always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you will come back next Monday for Graduation Day Part 1. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. That scene with Willow holding a sobbing Buffy, we will see a mirror of that in season four. The episode Bad Moon Rising, when there is a female werewolf and she almost kills Willow, Oz attacks and kills her, and then goes after Willow, Buffy stops him, and she holds a sobbing Willow. And I love that this relationship between Buffy and Willow continues, and the way that they are there for each other, and offer each other that support and love without saying anything in those moments, just being there. Something else that isn't quite foreshadowing, but that strikes me here, is this episode looks like it resolves the Buffy-Angel relationship. They break up. Buffy is grieving. They achieve a sense of peace at the dance. She gets this moment with him, but knows he's leaving. And if we didn't know what was coming, you might think, okay, this is now graduation day one and two is going to focus entirely on the mayor plot, or at least the mayor plot plus the fallout of Buffy dealing with her grief over Angel leaving. And that is brilliant because it makes it so much harder and more surprising when in graduation day we have that test of faith poisoning Angel, Angel dying, and Buffy being willing to do anything to save him. Angel momentarily thinking he should never have left. And then how it plays out the great danger he realizes he poses to Buffy. In this episode, he is acting out of concern for the emotional danger he poses to her, that he is standing in the way of her having a normal life. But in graduation day one and two, he recognizes he is literally a threat to her life. So all over again, this plays out, but in even higher stakes. Finally, the biggest foreshadowing is one that I didn't pick up at all on uh, my first, not just my first watch, because I wouldn't have known what was coming, but even my first time re-watching through the DVD, and, and I should have probably gotten it, this recognition of Buffy, where her the other students tell her, yes, we know things are wrong here, and we know you're the one who's been protecting us, sets up next week's graduation day where the entire class takes part in the battle and if we didn't know here that despite Giles comments about people rationalizing and going into denial that we got in the pilot episode they did in fact over these three years they did retain some of it they do know that something is happening, they understand Buffy's role, and that is why she can enlist them to fight with her. So that is it for spoilers and foreshadowing. Thank you again for listening, and I do hope you will come back next time for Graduation Day Part 1, where Buffy and her friends 
strive to stop the mayor's ascension, and Buffy comes face to face with Faith. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Thank you.